Hey guys and welcome back to Solo 23. I hope everyone is well and good and ready for another enjoyable Q&A episode, solo podcast, as of course we're manipulating the weeks with me, me and Danny, me, me and Danny, so you get a bit of the best of both worlds, so to speak. So hope everyone is enjoying the lovely weather that is gracing the UK at the moment. It is fantastically warm here in Craneworld, aka in Birmingham. So things are going good and having a good day off. Rest day for me is always on a Thursday. So did my 30 minutes of CV on the Stairmaster and 30 minutes followed up uh, of, of on the treadmill, George Osborne style. But now it just allows me to, to kill off both my CV, 30 minutes, and also just box off about good 5,000 steps, four 5,000 steps in the morning, inclusive of the walk to the local Pure Gym. So one of the benefits actually of living in a city centre, guys, is just the ease and accessibility to just a variety of gyms. So I've got a Pure Gym membership and I've got obviously the, the membership at Ultimate. So, But those will be ending very soon as so we uh, move to Sheffield Way in a month's time, just under a month's time. So things are going to change a little bit with regards to obviously our, our home gym and my environment of living, which is going to be a good thing, though, and obviously very much looking forward to to moving in with Danny officially, so to speak, because we've been like sort of sharing each other's houses for uh, the first year of our relationship, and yeah, we've been together pretty much a year, almost coming up to a year. So time flies, but time flies when you're having fun. That's a uh, soppiness over for today's podcast. So yeah, I'm going to do a bit of an update on myself, and then we're going to roll into the questions as always. So bit of an update on me so how is the mini cut going is going good in the sense that i'm down from obviously my start point which was now four weeks ago this is my fourth week in a deficit so four weeks ago 190 now down a 179 so 11 pounds down in four four weeks so it's been a pretty efficient ride in terms of fat loss responded pretty well initially as i knew i probably would i'd spent the best part of a year in a surplus so response rates as you spend more time in a surplus are just that much better and you just seem to just like drop calories and your body just goes yep thanks cool i'm dropping weight now so it seemed to be pretty responsive and i've not really had to change calories at all calories are low of course they are but they're meant to be low you know that the whole purpose of a mini cut, and I've actually had this question a lot in terms of how to set up a mini cut, and I'm not going to go into it because it's very, very simple, guys. You just need to get it done. Too many people waste time and, and spend time sort of dilly-dabbling around in a deficit. Just get the fuck in and get the fuck out and carry on with the, the goal at hand. The whole goal with this this phase, this mini cut, is to potentiate more progress, more muscle gain progress. So this is all about getting my composition, my body composition back into a spot which is favorable to gain lean tissue moving forwards. So yeah, it's going productive so far. Ideally, I wanna get sort of to the low 170s. So ideally I wanna do that over the next couple of weeks. If I can get that done in the next couple of weeks, that would be really productive, that would be great. If I need to carry it out a little bit further and I might just carry it out up until the point where me and Danny go away on holiday, just for purely the fact that I don't, I don't see it as a problem to do that. I don't see it as wasting time, and if anything, it will allow me to sort of be in a bit of a damage control situation for holiday as well, because that means I can go into holiday a little leaner, because I know I'm going to gain a little bit of weight on holiday, so I'd rather lose up until it and then come out of the holiday with that sort of 
rebounded glycogen effect and get stuck in some really productive training after the holiday. So that's the most likely situation for me. But yeah, down to 179 pounds this morning. Uh, Cardio-wise, still the same in terms of the setup. So I'm doing 30 minutes on the Stairmaster on my off days. It kind of works out as 60 minutes on my off days if you kind of count the fact that I'm hopping straight on the treadmill at a pretty high heart rate afterwards. Um, but on my on my training days, the only cardio that I'm doing is 30 minutes on a push day. And then I'm just doing anywhere between 10 and 15,000 steps a day. But the, the, the bare minimum is 50, is, sorry, it's 10,000. But I'm usually, it depends how much I'm, I'm walking and doing stuff, I'm usually hitting closer to 12. And me and Danny at the moment like to go on a bit of an evening walk just to sort of chill out, relax, and sort of cap off the day a bit. And that usually brings me to, to about that 12,000 mark. So that's where steps are at. And from a training performance standpoint, it's been a really good week. Things have been moving fairly well. Definitely moving like a little bit harder. Like push was harder to retain this week in terms of my my pressing on the incline hammer strength press and pressing on the, the high incline double shoulder press. Definitely feeling that just sort of like lack of oomph that you'd usually have when you're in a, a continued surplus. So I'm looking forward to having that oomph back, not going to lie. And I'm interested to sort of see how that comes back and how responsive I am to carbohydrates when I return. Because I, I do still measure my blood glucose now and again. And, and I fasted say at the moment it's, it's pretty, pretty low, which is obviously understandable because I'm in the deficit and I'm controlling my stress pretty well as well. So... There's a few good things that are going on on there with regards to biofeedback, which is great to see. And a resting heart rate is coming down as well. However, it's a little elevated just because of the weather. Um, I find when it's hotter, my resting heart rate is just a little bit higher anyway. Uh, on that topic, on that note, so you may have remembered about a month or a month and a half ago, had that event when I had to go drop myself off at A&E. Uh, with this the the heart the sort of racing heart rate kind of situation, so they had to do a little bit more investigating into that. Based that's like the 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 long story short of it. And it's a bit more of a longer story, but it's not really worth telling. So a bit more investigating had to be done, and so I had an appointment booked for a, an electrocardiogram um, or an echocardiogram. Okay, so this is basically like an ultrasound of your heart and quite a lot of people actually get these done as bodybuilders that are on performance enhancing drugs because obviously the heart can enlarge uh, organs can enlarge in general as you use peds and no don't worry i have not gone to the dark side so i'm not getting this done out of choice <laughs> unfortunately i'm getting it done because i dropped myself in a and e and i kind of wish i didn't to be honest but it, it happened and it was a lesson learned so i had to wait around for that and I had one appointment like a month ago and it got cancelled on the day of the appointment. I was like, for fuck's sake. Because it was just something I just wanted to get out the way, basically. I just wanted to sort of get it done and forget about it and not have to worry about having a bloody appointment for a, a, an ultrasound on my, on my heart. It's obviously one of your most important organs in your body. So it's a little bit nerve-wracking. So I waited another month, just sort of put it to the back of my mind again, and I went for it yesterday. And I'd spoken to a few people in private, sort of a few of my friends um, that I'm lucky enough to be able to speak to about it. And they just said, oh, you really don't need to worry, AJ. I'm sure it'll be absolutely fine. And had it done, and, and, and the actual lady that was doing the exam was very complimentary of my of my heart <laughs> she said that it was a very very healthy heart and uh, i had no issues whatsoever so did not have to worry about that at all but i'm just sort of punning that out there it's not really something that i needed to update anyone on it's more so just to remind you guys that you know 
not everything's always perfect and sometimes you have to do these things and you know you have to almost like be a bit worried about something like an expectation or whether it's you know you've got a blood test or you've got a scan or an MRI or something to be nervous about just try and you know what I did during the phase where I was waiting for the scan is I just focused on doing as many things that I could do to control my stress as possible so obviously training is one of them walks where I'm focusing on nasal breathing so sort of you know five seconds in the nose five seconds out through the nose because a lot of us just breathe through our mouths we don't breathe through our nose and one of the best ways to actually regulate your breathing is to do nasal breathing so I did a lot of that and I took advice from a lot of my friends in terms of stress management and Luke muscle mentors Luke Hoffman was especially helpful with his advice on uh, basically reducing stress and also improving resting heart rate and I took on board a lot of the comments that he had to add to the table and and I've seen you know, drastic improvements in terms of my overall mood, energy and just general ability to just handle stress. And that's massively important for me in, in, in the job and what I do from an individual perspective. To manage stress is, is massive. I have to manage stress. Otherwise it all just gets on top of me and I end up in a position where I'm fucking going to any with a racing heart rate and having to wait two months for a belay scan, you know, and just causing more stress. So I'm glad that's over and done with, to be honest, and just uh, happy to have the result that I, I knew that I'd probably get. Mm. So that is all good. Mm. Outside of that, I think hay fever has been a little bit kicking me in the arse a little bit with regards to water retention. Um, I feel pretty just like watery at the moment and just like swollen. I'm not too sure why. I'm not too sure if anyone else has been experiencing this, but both me and Danny have been feeling pretty watery for some reason and we've both been kind of suffering a little bit with with hay fever so I'm expecting it's potentially down to that eyes have been feeling a bit stingy etc so hopefully that comes off over the coming days um, but yeah other than that everything's pretty damn solid and I had a massage today as well because I am really struggling to open up my right side my lat on a rear lat spread it's probably why I haven't posted one in a while I just cannot open the fucker up and it's really annoying me. So I've got some work done on my scap and my lats and also my left hip. Just giving me a bit of shit because I've been doing the Stairmaster, which is kind of my fault. It's like shooting yourself in my foot when uh, my left hip has always been a bit meh. Chuck myself on the Stairmaster three times a week and expect it to be fine. And that's not really the reality of the situation. It's going to be a little bit shitty when you do that, funnily enough. So, yeah, I don't really listen to my body on that front. So I need to learn a little bit more to sort of say, oh, okay, Jay, maybe you don't have to do the Stairmaster. Maybe you could do the cross trainer and not fuck your hip up. So, yeah, maybe I'll do the cross trainer. Maybe I won't. <laughs> but, yeah, so let's get into some of these questions and we'll see where it takes us as per. So first question is about pre- and post-workout fat intake. So dietary fat in the pre- and post-workout window. So pre-workout, I would recommend having some dietary fat, especially if you are in a deficit. The reason why is because your ability or the potential chance for you to have uh, an episode of, of reactive hyperglycemia when you train, which is essentially you causing a raise, a spike in insulin and a spike in blood sugar, and that and that huge drop-off when you start to demand the use of glucose when you train causes this dizziness, this cold sweat, which is massively distracting in the training sessions. Ultimately, if you were using things like exogenous insulin or things like that, you could cause a, such a high event of reactive hypoglycemia that you could, in fact, die. As naturals, we don't have to worry about that. We can go pretty 
pretty pretty hypo and not have to worry about it because we're not going to the point where we potentially could kill ourselves um it's not going to happen in reality in reality of things so but nevertheless feeling like that is not fun like you can get very shaky you can feel very unwell and it's certainly not a good position to be training so for most of my clients that are in a deficit i highly recommend that they're consuming anywhere between 10 and 15 grams of fat in their pre-workout meal. And that can come from not only a direct source, but also a trace source. So you could have, you know, say you're having oats as your pre-workout meal. Let's say, you know, 100 grams, 125 grams of oats is roughly 10 grams of fat. So you're having 10 grams of fat there. So you only need to add in a, an additional five grams of fat from something like dark chocolate or nut butter, something to put on top of the oats and just add a bit of an additional fat intake. So yeah, fats in the pre-workout window, especially if you're in a deficit, highly recommended. Fats in a in a pre-workout window when you're in a surplus, meh, like you don't really need them because the chances are of reactive hypoglycemia when you're at higher body weights and your insulin sensitivity is much less, is much less, funnily enough. So I wouldn't, re I wouldn't say that it's as important when you are in a surplus and you're in a constantly overfed state, okay? So I wouldn't worry about it as much as I would if you're in a deficit. For girls, especially on low carbohydrate intakes with a, um, a massive potential for you to have these hyperglycemic events, pre-workout, fat intake, very important. And a lot of you girls do not take note of that. And in your coaching plans from your, from your coach, there's a lot of plans that just do not contain, well, much fat at all, and uh, especially in that pre-workout setting, and then you're wondering why you get into the gym and you can barely lift anything because you're going dizzy. Sort that shit out, you know, and raise that comment with your coach and just sort of say, look, I'm going hypo in my sessions, like, I'm willing to push hard and dig, but look, give me some bloody dietary facts, I need it in my training, I need it pre-workout, okay? And post-workout, I keep it low, all the time. The reason why is our ability to uptake glucose in that window is heightened due to the fact that we've somewhat depleted glucose and we have that demand for glucose in that post-workout setting. So it would make sense to create an environment or create a meal where the rapid rapid absorb, absorption of glucose is prioritized. So keeping fat intake very low and sticking to more high GI carbohydrates in that post-workout setting would be a really, really good idea. Again, not so pivotal in a surplus. Ultimately, calories are king. But in a deficit where recovery is the most important thing in that post-workout setting, I would highly recommend you go for a low-fat or as low-fat as possible post-workout meal. And again, go for the higher GI carbohydrates, the ones that are going to absorb very fast. And then in that secondary post-workout meal, you add a bit of additional fat to again get you back to baseline with regards to you know not creating that rebound hyperglycemia event from your post-workout meal and again i'd recommend that if you're having if you're another situation is that if you're having an intra-workout drink the importance of the pre-workout fat supplementation or fat addition is maybe not as important as it would be if you're not consuming a, an intra-workout drink because the chances of uh, hyperglycemia are again limited due to the fact that you're con you're constantly having or sipping on glucose throughout your session so some considerations there for for different circumstances so i hope that makes sense okay so next question is on continuous reps so this is from georgie boy hope you're good mate this is on continuous reps so compounds versus isolations 
do we need to be like more aware of doing continuous reps on specific things? I think that actually, and this is just again, I'll answer all these questions off the top of my head, but when it comes to, to compounds, I think the importance of breaking each, each rep down is very, very pivotal for maximizing the efficiency of that rep from a force output point of view. So if you think about it, in a squat, like for example, a hack squat, like the Cybex hack, you're going from a very precarious A to very cautious, like very precarious B. That A to B journey is, there's so much fucking going on. So if you're trying to do continuous reps in that setting where there's so much going on, or a multi-joint exercise like a deadlift, um, or even a back squat with a barbell, where there's so much going on, your control and your breakdown of those reps becomes more and more important, okay? So for, for compounds, break down those reps, really, really break them down, think about every single one, brace your core, perform the Valsalva maneuver if you need to, if you need to really, really brace, and you know, really just take your time. And a lot of people will say that's wrong and you, you need to do continuous reps on everything, but unfortunately, I think the people that recommend that are quite injured a lot of the time and keep fucking themselves up because they're not preparing themselves for rep after rep, you know? So they're actually having some sort of some sort of injury crop up, prop up all the time because they're continuously going for a rep that they weren't properly prepared for. So preparation for that rep is absolutely pivotal, okay? Those, those reps are so fucking dangerous. Like, the rep where I got, you know, I got a couple of assisted reps on the Cybex hack yesterday. Both of those were extremely dangerous reps. Like, if I had one foot out of line, or I rushed it, or I didn't take enough time in between reps, like, that would be an issue for me, okay? And I would get into a position where, potentially, I'll, I'll, see, I'll, I'll see something pop. Like, my adductor will go ping, as JP usually says. Um, something will go wrong, and, and that's just, just not worth it for me, in my opinion. So yeah, break down your compounds, and then coming on to isolations, I think that actually on isolations you could be a lot more continuous. Now, you can kind of answer that question as to why you'd be more continuous on isolation yourself. Why do you think you'd be more continuous on isolation? Because you, you're just a lot more locked in. There's not much going on. Okay, on a leg extension, on a leg curl, on an arm curl, preacher curl, there's not much going on, okay? Your stability is massively improved comparative to something like a back squat or a hack squat or a pendulum squat. There's a lot less going on, so the risk is much lower. So with that being said, your ability to perform continuous reps and go even go for a rep that perhaps isn't the safest is not going to give you so much issues along the line or later on in that set and you can think about other things that are going to just enhance your ability to do this even further so for example creating an even enhance even enhanced stability on a isolation so for example uh putting a seat belt around your hips on a leg extension and a seated leg curl because what does that do it enhances stability and stability is like one of our number one factors in terms of preventing an injury and then we can go continuous and then we can be repetitive. But continuous reps on something, especially like a big compound movement, is just dangerous in a lot of ways. So take your time, in my opinion. Unless you are, uh, this is the only thing that I would consider, is like if you're very, very experienced, 
So your experience level with training is just so fucking high. Someone, for example, who, who I know will do continuous reps is Mark Claxton. You'll see him on the Cybex hack squat with five plates aside, which is no fucking joke. That's ridiculous. And he'll just do continuous reps with it. No real breaks. And I look at it and I think that's just mad. But he knows that Cybex hack like the back of his hand. You know, he's done so many sessions on that particular hat that he just knows where the limits are. And and yes, he's had, he's had his injuries and he's had his niggles. Would he have had less if he'd not done continuous reps? I don't know, maybe not. But I would say that he's doing a lot of things right because his quads look ridiculous. And the ability to perform continuous reps like that is a pretty crazy feat. For example, another another one who, who performs continuous reps and tells me off for not doing them is Rich, Rich Godzeki. He, he does continuous reps on the hack all the time. And he, he'll say on my videos, he'll be like, why are you stopping? Um, so, yeah, there, there is a reason behind why I do it. But ultimately, I think, you know, for other people, like, pros that know these machines, like the back of their hands, I can see why they want to do continuous. So, yeah, I've rambled for like five, six minutes about that. So I'll, I'll leave that question for now. But hopefully that, that answers your question fully, bud. So next question is on boiling vegetables. Does this prove an issue for uh, reducing the quality of nutrients within the vegetables? No, I, I don't think it does. Uh, Joe Jeffrey uh, came on a... Actually, no, it was Joe Jeffrey's podcast and Luke Hoffman was the guest. And so it's Optimal Physique Development. And Luke was the guest and they talked all about fruits and vegetables. And I think one of the questions was like the cooking process. And like, what's a good cooking process? What's a bad one? And I'm pretty sure they discussed that unless you like cook it in a very, very weird way, that it's not going to be too much of an issue at all. And if anything, I think boiling is probably one of the best ways you can do it. Or, I mean, I pan fry most of my vegetables and I remember them saying in the podcast that that's absolutely fine and there's no issues with that. But again, I think people worry too much about like nutrient loss like, you know, people said, oh, you know, what happens if you heat whey? You know, does the whey quality diminish? And it doesn't, you know, it just does not, you know. So I would say that, I mean, you're not going to eat fruit, you're not going to eat veg raw, are you? That's the reality of things. So, you know, cook it the way that's easiest for you. But I'd say, you know, for me, I pan fry and I, I, I think that's probably one of the best ways you could do it. Again, with like fry light or olive oil or whatever, you know, just get something in the pan and, and, and cook it. You know, I don't think you need to be worrying too much about nutrient loss within the cooking process. Okay, the main thing is you just eat your vegetables. Eat your damn vegetables. Okay, so next question is, and probably quite a lengthy one, is the differences between... Uh, men and women within fat loss. So there are definitely dif differences. This is from Izzy. So there's, there's definite differences. And I, I've seen this amongst, obviously, uh, the many clients that I've been lucky enough to coach through through fat loss phases so far. So with regards to the, the, the differences with women, obviously, we have the menstrual cycle to battle. And that's obviously playing a, a pretty pivotal role in terms of uh, the, the rate of loss and understanding that a specific week within the cycle um, when they are on, even in the gaining phase, for example, can play havoc with the scale and the look. Obviously, water retention will come up in the, the pre-menstrual cycle sitting um, for most people. Water retention will rise, bloating will rise, um, digestive discomfort will be an issue potentially within some, and then you'll get the cycle itself, you'll have the water retention still residing, and then it will drop off within the week after. 
Sorry if I just veered away from the screen. I didn't run to save someone's life. I just closed the window because living in Birmingham means that there's a building going on all the bloody time and it's noisy. So yeah, I was talking about the menstrual cycle. So in terms of yeah the effects that that has, it skews a lot of data for me as a coach, to be honest, and it's a bit frustrating in a lot of ways. But as long as you manage it and you, and you can predict it and you get people to track their cycle and obviously log it on your coaching sheets or log it on an app, whatever they feel most comfortable with doing is pretty important and pivotal in terms of just understanding where they are at and continually making changes and adjustments that match that that sort of specific situation. Um, in regards to other changes, I definitely see as a result of dieting, uh, females tend to accumulate a little bit more water retention and the removal of that and the removal of dietary stress or induced stress from being in a deficit is pretty important too. So I do like to definitely take the approach with a lot of females, especially females under higher levels of stress or generally are a little bit more stressed out and not as relaxed as, as some other females. There's plenty of females that are really relaxed, don't get me wrong, and but there's plenty that aren't, as I'm sure people will attest to and even admit if they are a female, they'll be like, yeah, I'm a stress head with dieting. So yeah, fair play. So I like to implement the two high days approach. So the back-to-back -back high days at the end of the week um, I really like that with my female clients because I find that that releases a lot of the diet fatigue that's been induced throughout the dieting week and doesn't actually tend to have an, a, a negative effect whatsoever on continued progress. So actually it has a positive effect because we diminish that, that water weight, that body water that's been accumulated throughout the, the hard week of dieting. So we diminish that off. And then we get in a position where they can further attack fat loss into the next week. And they'll probably look their best over those two high days because they also get the benefit of just having more food, which they look forward to. It's a psychological reward. Uh, like there's not much differences in terms of the fact that stressful or more stress-influenced male dieters respond in a very similar fashion. So George, for example, is a little bit more of a, of a stressful dieter in the sense that he does definitely get a bit stressed out by is it am I ready am I doing this right am I doing that right and it's it's, it's, it's it's understandable because he just cares a lot about the process but nevertheless that resolve the resolve for him is within the high days like the high days for him bring him out of that deep dark place where he's like Fuck this <laughs> um, and it gives him something to look forward to and psychologically big reward aspect okay so it brings off that diet and do stress produces that better look and, and how we'd set that up for, for people that are wondering so the two high days at the, at the end of the week will be back to back usually for psychological reasons they will be on training days just because getting someone to have a high day on a, on a non-training day is pretty difficult you know saying hey you know you're gonna have a high day and you're gonna have them on off days it's like the fuck what are you why are you doing that you know, it's very difficult for people to accept that. But nevertheless, if we can get someone to do that, a lot of the time it's pretty beneficial because they're having the whole day off training and they're having high food. Like that's a combination for epic removal of diet-induced fatigue. But doing it in practice is a, a different beast. So yeah, that's what I like to do. The high days itself will probably be initially up to like off-season carbohydrate intakes with an addition of... Uh, dropping protein down to sort of baseline, so around about a gram per pound, and fats are very low. So calorie-wise, it's not much higher than a normal day, but it's still high enough to elicit 
a response that's primarily increasing carbohydrates and reducing diet fatigue as a result. Carbohydrates are your main tool in terms of removing diet fatigue as well. Like they play such a pivotal role in that process. Um, so that's why we utilize carbohydrates in that setting. And I wouldn't really do anything else in terms of like fat loads or protein loads or anything like that. Like you could almost like, I see some coaches trying to increase protein and get some sort of like thermic effect of feeding or diuretic effect uh, through increasing protein. But I mean, in the grand scheme of things, I think that's going to cause a lot of people digestive tract issues, bloat them and things like that. So actually with a lot of my female clients, I actually really like a lower protein dose than a male, not because of any sort of specific reason besides the fact that females tend to have a little bit more issues or more recurrent issues with digestion and especially influenced by the menstrual cycle as well. So if I run a protein dose that is always adequate but not significantly high, then I find that their digestion is just much more consistent. So I do tend to go for a slightly lower protein amount in most of my females. But that's not to say that I don't have females on high protein. I've tried high protein in quite a few of my females and some to, to great success, uh, some some to not success and, and, and actually detriment. And obviously we've removed protein then for, from, from the diet and brought them back down to sort of a more perceived amount that they can handle and just worked it up from there if we need to. So outside of that, in terms of fat loss and like uh, diet breaks and things like that, so diet breaks are pretty similar across the board. Obviously females notoriously have to get onto a lot lower calories. And this is where the whole debate and uh, silly conversations are had between coaches and, and people backlashing each other. And I don't really like it, you know, but I see a lot of people calling out people and saying, oh my God, such and such part thing on such and such calories shut the fuck up like who cares i mean ultimately yeah you wouldn't put someone on stupid stupid calories that make no sense there are some shit coaches out there guaranteed all right but a lot of the time females have to dig females have to go low to get the fat off and the more you realize that the more you'll have females turning up in shape on show day so obviously there is a way to get a female there and all the way there without having to compromise so many things, especially calorically and from an expenditure point of view. But still like not like not pushing them is you not doing your job. Like you've got to push people to get to where they want to be because they want to be in stage on, in condition and winning or doing well. You know, that's your job to get them on stage. Your job is not like, I see this a lot, like, oh, I got this girl to stage, and she still maintained her menstrual cycle. Yeah, fantastic, but she placed dead last, because she was still fat. You know, like, that's not a win. That's not a net win. She, like, if she'd have maybe pushed a bit harder, yeah, okay, cool, she might have lost her menstrual cycle for a period of time, but she might have actually placed in the show, which was the goal. And a lot of these, you know, a lot of females will compromise their their general health from you know, a menstrual cycle perspective to, to get on stage. Some don't, and some turn up in perfect condition with a menstrual cycle, like hats off to them, amazing job. And you know, if you've done that through a very smart coaching process, then perfect, but a lot of people will not maintain their menstrual cycle. Um, and that is probably one of the differences in terms of the recovery phase. Of course, males have to think very heavily about recovering um, their sex hormones, so testosterone, but females have to really think about regaining their menstrual cycle post-competition if they have lost it. That has to be a prioritization in their post-show window. 
is health and a, a phase spent at regaining their their health markers as opposed to just looking at oh okay I finished bodybuilding prep let's let's gain muscle you know in reality that some of the females and males are not in a position to gain muscle post show they're in a position where health has to be prioritized and that's the first variable you have to chase down before you chase uh, anything else from a hypertrophic or another fat loss phase perspective so yeah and outside of that i think you know peaking obviously females require a lot less manipulation with regards to peaking um, especially in the lower level of muscle categories so bikini peaking is much more simple than a a figure athlete or a, a women's bobby a women's bobby builder wow a win a women's bodybuilder the heat is taking my voice away so and obviously like male bodybuilding etc as well in terms of the differences in peaking peaking is is quite drastic you know you're going to be loading a lot more carbohydrates into a male than you are a female in most circumstances don't take it too literally because some females have a very high tolerance for carbohydrates um i'm coaching a a female at the moment, she's very light and she's on, you know, plus 400 grams of carbs a day and not really gaining weight. So some people's response to carbohydrate and glucose is incredible and you have to be aware of that and you don't just have to sort of stereotype saying girls take on more less carbohydrates than males. That's not true. But in most circumstances, the peaking process is much more simple for uh, people who are less muscled and that applies to male bodybuilding as well. The more muscled you are, the more complex the peaking because the more muscle you have to get full and the more muscle you have to care for in terms of the diet perspective as well. Okay, so yeah, that's my synopsis and wrap up. I could probably a whole podcast on that question, but I will leave it there. It's that's 10 minutes on, on a one question. So next question is on magnesium glycinate and glutamine benefits. So what's the benefits of using magnesium glycinate and using glutamine, L-glutamine, which is an amino acid? So magnesium glycinate, a mineral, glutamine, an amino acid, what's the benefits? So let's cover the one that probably has benefits first, and then we'll discuss one that maybe has benefits but probably doesn't. So magnesium glycinate is a mineral that can definitely aid bodybuilding in a sense. It can add a positive to your bodybuilding process. The reason why is, is it works very well at calming the nervous system, okay? So it has a calming effect. Now, anything that can calm and help us balance the autonomic nervous system is very, very, very advantageous because we are in a constant battle to control this autonomic nervous system. So we have our parasympathetic branch and we have our sympathetic branch. You know, most of you who have watched this podcast in a while, for a while probably know these two branches very well, but to cover them again, sympathetic dominant or sympathetic branch in the autonomic nervous system is our fight or flight branch. It's where we go into this state of releasing adrenaline, release, releasing cortisol, releasing stress hormones, and being ready to attack. So it's what we want to get into when we're when we're in that, that pre-workout setting and when we're in the gym, and when we're wanting to attack weights and when we're wanting to elicit a performance-based outcome. When we're outside of the gym, we really want to focus on getting back into that parasympathetic branch, our rest and digest branch, our chill-out state, our recovery state. That's when we're going to be doing the most in terms of, or that's when we're going to be having the greatest adaptations in terms of, you know, forming new muscle tissue, recovering, getting ready for the next session, and also aiding in, in, a, in a fat loss phase in regards to, you know, bringing down these levels of stress hormones and being in a position to continually lose fat and basically, you know, be, be in a calm position. You know, we, we can't probably mobilize fat as well as we would if we were just constantly stressed and in that sympathetic dominant state. 
Okay, so for fat loss and muscle gain, they're both very important to be able to control these two these two beasts. Now, magnesium glycinate at dosages anywhere between two and 400 milligrams can be put appropriately within the day around these tasks that are potentially elevating that sympathetic response. So for me, I take magnesium glycinate during a diet, after cardio, and after training, and pre-bed at 200 milligrams in each sitting. Okay, so I'm trying to combat that effect of being in that sympathetic state, heart rate elevated, and I'm trying to get back into that recovery state before my next period of, of being, again, in a sympathetic dominant environment. So that's magnesium glycinate. And again, obviously, the calming effect, well, it improves sleep because the more calm you are, the probably the better sleep you're going to get. So yeah, magnesium glycinate is a, is a good one. And again, it's not harsh on the gut because, you know, something like, for example, magnesium, uh, magnesium, uh, what's the actual name for it? So there's another brand, brand um, a chain of magnesium, strain of magnesium, should I say. I think it's taurate. I don't think it's taurate, actually. Um, it might be oxide, magnesium oxide. But there, I remember one of my clients picked it up and, oh yes, I've got it now, magnesium citrate. So magnesium citrate has probably a, a, a fairly significant lax, laxative effect. So glycinate is probably the, the best strain to use, the best type to use in terms of achieving that goal. Um, whereas, uh, you know, the, the others, um, for example, like citrate, could provide a, a laxative effect and that's not what you want from magnesium. Okay, so just be careful with the ones that you do pick up. Glutamine-wise, I mean, there's been maybe some research to uncover some potential gut health benefits, um, especially if you're dealing with any sort of gut health issues. Um, the lining of the bacteria in the gut may potentially, potentially be improved by glutamine supplementation, but outside of that, it does really fuck all in terms of hypertrophy and muscle building. So if you're taking glutamine and your reasoning is not because of like gut health benefits, then I probably wouldn't bother. And then again, the research is probably not too, uh, not amazing in terms of just anything that it does. So um, I personally don't take glutamine. Um, I did, I don't anymore, there's no reason to. Okay, so that's what I would say on that front. Let's move on to the next question. So the next question is isolations before compound movements. So why have I been doing this currently? And what do I think the benefits are? So for example, I don't think, or for example, the reasons why I'm doing it and where I'm doing it, I'm doing it on a leg day. Okay, so I'm doing leg curls, leg extensions before my primary movements. Now, the reason why I'm doing this, and this will probably clear up why I'm not doing it on an upper body day, is because doing those two movements in that setting is allowing me to get very, very, very good contractions because from a neurological perspective, I'm very fresh. So mentally, uh, my focus is at its best at that point in the session. Now, of course, you'd argue that when your focus is highest, doing something like a compound would be the best. But what is a compound? A compound, a compound in itself, one set of a hack squat to the intensity that we take it is very neurologically demanding. So how do you expect you're going to perform in those leg extensions and leg curls that you're doing after your hack squat top set? Probably not the best, right? So doing them beforehand where you're a little fresher and you can really just sort of get going with them and attack them is advantageous because they don't, they're not that neurologically taxing leg curls and leg extensions. 
and neither are they systemically taxing either. So you can get them done and still be pretty fresh for your hack squat, but at least you've got them done in a quality fashion. So you can force really strong contractions, you can stay locked in, you can get great execution, and these movements can offer you probably a bit more bang for your buck in this setting than they would later on. Also, a lot of you aren't blessed with machines that offer a change or manipulation in the resistance profile. So for example, at Ultraflex, you got, you've got the ability to uh, match the resistance profile to the strength profile of the actual um, muscle that you're working. And that actually offers a benefit in terms of later on the session where that muscle is inherently weaker and you can start to challenge the muscle through the range in which it's strong versus weak. Okay, so you can balance that out by manipulating the resistance profile on, for example, something like a prime leg curl or a prime leg extension or strive if you have them in your in, in older gyms. Okay, but if you haven't got those pieces, then arguably doing these movements first will offer a benefit because you are mechanically going to be quite weak going into those movements at the end of the session because you've attached yourself with the, with the with the big compounds. Okay, there's pros and cons of both, of course. Some people might find that if they do the isolations first, they're really taking away from their their performance in the in the compound movements. That's fair play. If you find that that happens, then maybe not doing this is, is the best approach for you. But for me, I don't find that it does that at all. If anything, I think it actually improves my ability in the compound movements because I'm a little bit more warm. Um, I'm also just sort of like... I'm a little bit amped up already. I'm not having to find my momentum in the session. I've already gotten going a little bit and I've got momentum from a few movements that most likely have gone well because it's very rare that you have a day where you have an off day on a leg curl or an off day on a leg extension. I know that if Jack Thorburn's watching, he'll probably say that every day is an off day on a leg curl because I know that he gets pretty pissed off for them. But uh, when he's on a good run, that's a good start to the session. But for most of us, like who don't have issues with regards to like muscular contractions and things like that, which I know that in all, seri in, in all seriousness, Jack does have issues with regards to muscular contractions. I know that. Um, but if you don't have those issues, then probably going into a leg curl leg extension, you can just hop on it um, and you can just get good good start to your session and mentally get off to a, a banger before you've even gotten going. And that's a benefit in itself because a lot of the time a compound can go out, go wrong and it can affect your entire psychological approach to the rest of the session and bring you down massively. And then you're going into your compounds pissed off. So that's why I set up compounds, uh, isolations and then compounds on a leg day. On an upper body day, it just doesn't make sense to me, if I'm honest. Um, I just don't think there's much benefit of doing... I mean, maybe if you've got a really weak body part, like for me, I'd maybe consider doing my arms before I move on to the rest of the upper body session. But... Besides that, I don't think that there'd be an advan an advantage from me doing something like that in, in an upper body day. So I, I hope that makes sense. But yeah, primarily I'm doing this on lower body sessions. So someone's saying sleep tracking apps, they're getting zero deep sleep on a Fitbit. So first of all, I think the sleep tracking apps are quite likely half the time a load of garbage uh, in terms of what they're producing now remember that your fitbit can just i mean i've probably tracked 100 steps doing this bloody podcast so there's a lot of things that these sleep tracking apps can do which are giving us a output which is probably consistently inaccurate so if you're seeing that you're consistently getting zero deep sleep then 
really assess as to whether you could be improving your sleep efficiency and your sleep quality within your day-to-day routine. But outside of that, if you're constantly getting zero deep sleep, you're actually waking up feeling good, you sleep throughout the night, you're not waking up a million times to go to the toilet, then it's likely that you're probably getting some deep sleep and the app's just telling you that you're not. Okay, so assess your day-to-day habits, your routine, your sleep schedule and everything like that before you make assumptions. But I would say that the likelihood of you actually just getting zero deep sleep is probably quite low and the app is probably telling you a bunch of, of rubbish, you know. So the best, I always say this to my clients, the best feedback that they can give me from a perspective of sleep is how have you slept this week? Tell me how you've slept. Like, have you slept good? Have you slept bad? Have you had any nights that have been interrupted? Have you had any nights where you went to bed really, really late? Like, what the hell happened? Tell me about it. You know, that's what I need from a coaching perspective, not not just a, a percentage in a box from an app that's maybe not the most accurate thing in the, in the world. Like, of course, it offers benefit for sure, but it's not the be all and end all. That's absolutely true, okay? So, and also try maybe a few other apps. The sleep app, the sleep cycle app is not bad. Again, and also depends, like if you have someone else in the room, like for example, it's pointless me using it when me and Danny are sleeping in the same bed because it picks up noise from the microphone. And it's just pointless. Like if she wakes up four times in the night and I wake up none, my sleep quality shit, but it actually could be 100%. You know, so it's just it's depending on where you are. Um, so yeah, be really aware of that, that sleep tracking apps are probably not the most accurate thing in the world. Surprise, surprise, you know, there are probably more accurate things out there. Like for example, wearing a polar heart rate tracker and actually sleeping in that is probably quite accurate. Um, an aura ring is probably quite an accurate tool as well. I've heard the accuracy on those things are really, really good. I'm toying at the moment between getting an Apple watch or getting an aura ring. I kind of want both, if I'm honest, because I want the Apple Watch because I want a actual thing on my wrist. So right now I've got a Fitbit Blaze, which is like three years old, and I'm pretty sure everything's fucked on it, if I'm honest. Um, but I kind of, yeah, I want a new fitness tracker, but I'm thinking of getting the Apple Watch because I, I don't really want a ring, if I'm honest. And I would just want something that consistently can track everything for me. So yeah, I'm thinking of getting the, the Apple Watch, and I'll let you know how I get on with that if I do get it. So... Next question is on my reverse diet in 2017. So Jeannie sort of asked like, when did I reverse? And I guess I can sort of go into sort of what, how you would know how to reverse and the process that sort of took place. So basically up until my first show, I was dieting really, really hard. So the BNBF Midlands, I dieted very hard for that. Calories at their lowest were 1900 uh, on all days. I think actually a little bit lower on rest days, but not much. Just a little bit of a change in fats and carbs. And I was doing 30 minutes of Stairmaster. Uh, I've forgotten what level, but it was high, it was hard. And I was doing that every day. And I was doing 15 to 20,000 steps. Um, so I was doing a lot of activity, okay? Trying to just pull off a lot. That was in the final few weeks leading up to the Midlands when I realized that I was a bit behind. So I pushed really, really hard for the Midlands, did the Midlands had a diet break, came off the diet break, pushed for, I think, just about two or three weeks up until the UK FBA Northern. So by that point, it was like 24, 25 weeks of prep. And then what I did for the BNBF, uh, for the UK FBA Northern is I ran a peak week where I just, from Monday onwards, I just started with my usual refeeds. 
And then I just tapered the refeeds back a little bit and I just kept running like 400 to 450 carb. Uh, low fat, 40 fat and about uh, 180, 170 protein. And I just kept protein pretty low, fats really low, carbs were up, you know, from where they were at like 250 to up to all the way to 400, 450 and I just kept running it. And I just looked better and better and better that week. And that was probably the best look that I had. Like Jack and me agreed that that was one of the best looks that I had all season, the new KDFBA Northern. It was just such a nice balance of fullness and conditioning <clears throat> without being like super, super, you know, depleted. Um, and then from that point onwards, I just thought, okay, well, I'd run the refeeds all week and my weight had actually gone down. So I was like, okay, what will happen if I just keep doing this? So I just kept running the refeeds. I kept running four, 400 carb or 450 carb. Um, anywhere between these two numbers, it's just depending on the day, the training session, etc. And uh, same expenditure, so still doing the 15,000 steps, and I just pulled out the Stairmaster completely. And I just focused on doing steps, and I did them all on my treadmill, very quick. Um, or I went out for a morning walk and an evening walk before I got my treadmill. So and I, there would be fast walks, so the morning walk would be fucking pacey, and I'd try and beat a time on my Fitbit. And then the evening walk again would be pacey, and I'd try and beat a time on my Fitbit. You know, every single time I'm trying to beat this time, beat this time. If you're an OG follower, you'll remember me putting them on my story, the Fitbit times from my power walks. So I did one in the morning, one in the evening. Trust me, I dragged myself on a lot of those fucking walks. Okay, so they were tough. And I was eating a lot of food, you know, and training performance was good. Pumps were good. Um, and my body weight just kept on, like, maintaining or going down. So I was like, okay, I'm just going to roll with this. And that was it for the rest of the season. I just rolled with that. I never really saw below 400 grams of carbs the entire rest of that prep. Um, of course, expenditure was high, you know, 15,000, 20,000 steps a day. No formal cardio, apart from a 100-calorie warm-up on a cross-trainer before a session. That was it. Um, and I just sort of tickled away and, and, and got better. And probably, again, looked really good for the BNBF finals. And then from that point onwards, like, of course, I had, like, I think five or six weeks into the BNBF finals. And then another three or two weeks into the UKDFBA Finals. So by that point, it was another 10 weeks of dieting at least. And then another six weeks on top of that to the Worlds. And um, by the Worlds, I was just very tired. And my body had just been in a deficit for too long. And even like coming out of a deficit just wouldn't have made me look any better. Um, by that point, it was just so long in a deficit that I was just starting to really, really look quite shit. So um, it's why I'm being quite cautious with my, my clients now that are coming in quite fast. Because I'm, I'm like, okay, right, let's say this guy you know, gets all the way through till November, how are we going to plan things for this person? You know, how, how are we going to get them to where they need to be and holding on to what they need to hold on to? Because what my mistake was is that I pushed really hard for the first show and then I just didn't have enough in the tank because I'd already sort of used that, that bit of gas to get me there and I didn't have enough sort of redemption of diet breaking or coming off the gas to be able to then, you know, either push harder again or, or go up in calories and actually look good. Valentin Tambosi also, he reversed for quite a period of time in, in 17 all the way up until November. Um, and he actually just looked worse and really found it quite hard to adhere. Um, I didn't really struggle with adherence too much, but I, I struggled quite a bit with just maintaining my look, um, maintaining my fullness and, and roundness to tissue. And I think that was a lot down to me doing stupid things with my training as well. So um, if anyone's listening to this and they're thinking about adding sets or doing more in the gym, don't fucking do it because I did it and I started to look worse. Um, so stick to your volume. Don't add more. The minute you add more, it's just you're, you're opening up this door 
Here's the door opened and that's tissue loss you've just let in, okay? So don't do that, um, just do your work and don't do any more. Um, listen to what your coach is saying because there's a reason why they're saying it. Okay, so would my physique, how would my physique do this year in terms of the lineup? Um, so it's an interesting question and actually I think that I, 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 I think honestly, like it would just be as, just as hard as 17. You know, in 17, Kieran Howells, um, Tafamoji, uh, all of these guys, very, very good athletes. Um, you know, the top five of the BMW Brit Britain were, were crazy good. You know, the, the top five at the um, UK FBA finals were really, really fucking good. Um, so I think, again, it would just be, it'd be just as difficult as 17. Um, there are obviously some really, really good guys out there this year that I probably wouldn't want to be competing up against, if I'm honest. And I look at some of them, and I'm coaching some of them, and I'm like, fuck me, I wouldn't want to be going up against you. But I would still go against them. i give them a run for their money. I might look skinny in a T-shirt, but when I pose and, and I, I get into positions and I can sort of be a bit of a physique contortionist, like just morph myself into something that looks bigger. I mean, at the end of the day, like I was... 148 at the UK FBA. Uh, next to me, Ronnie, Ronnie Kai, who was like 170, and then the other side of me in third, uh, Kieran Howes, he was like 165. So they had a lot of weight on me, um, but your ability to obviously get it all off and dig the fuck in. Um, not that those guys didn't, they they certainly did, but uh, you know a few extra lines here and there def definitely does you some favours. And uh, you know I think if Kieran had come in. Balls to the wall condition, and Ronnie as well. Maybe they'd have tipped me, um, but they they didn't. So they didn't tip me. <laughs> so uh, now all, all I'm saying to my guys, I'm like, you know, if you're in, if you're on on the day, and you're like in full contest condition, you're gonna be hard to break because there's very few people that are gonna turn up like that. So yeah, that's that's my answer to that question. So quick answer on sort of short but aggressive surplus phases. So do I think it's beneficial to like go into a surplus for a very short period of time? Uh, no, no I don't. The reason why I don't is like, why? You're just adding a load of body fat really fast and you're not spending enough time to actually actualize tissue gain, you know, muscle tissue gain. You're not spending enough time to start beating the logbook. You might have a really good few weeks where you're in that giant, ginormous surplus and you're actually beating the book a little bit. But then off the back of that, you will drop off faster than like a fly will drop when you flick it like that you know you that's a weird analogy but like seriously you will you will you will really drop back very fast as you enter the deficit required to get off all the fat that you've gained so my answer to that is is no go in longer surplus phases be assertive you know be assertive like you no know, i'm not a big fan of going very very slow i'd say in between this aggressive and also the slow so like in between that um, and that usually works out, depends on the person, man. Like, I've had people gain really fast, um, but their physique shots still look good. So, if anything, my answer is probably very de determined on the individual and be sure to take progress photos very consistently because I've had some clients gain probably as fast as you'd probably mention in this aggressive surplus phase, but still look really, really good. So, it really does depend on the person, the situation, and whether they can handle a fast rate of gain, psychologically as well as physically. Next question is training around niggles. 
So how to train around consistent niggles. Um, so again, if it's persistent and it's actually very painful, and if anything, it's, if it's interrupting your day-to-day -day life, you need to get that sorted. So go and see a physio, go and see a chiro, go and see an osteopath, someone who can help you. So I saw my, 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 my massage therapist this morning, and you know I've been having issues with my left hip, my upper back, my release, uh, my left lat, um, right lat, sorry, and touch words, it feels awesome now. So get work done and it should be okay. Um, but you will need someone to release that area if it is tight and persistently tight. So get someone to release it, things should be good from there and then just be cautious. Like once someone's released that area, it's not all good. You've got to be still, you can't go in and train like a absolute maniac and expect it to be fine again. You know, just be cautious worth working around it as you continue and pick and select exercises and be like, okay, that's not working. That's causing me pain. That's causing me irritation. Pick them out and chuck them, like replace them with something else that's not causing you an issue. Um, that's really, really important. So pullovers for hypertrophy in terms of like dumbbell pullovers, cable pullovers, machine pullovers. So from what I've seen, really, I, I, I would say if you're not doing a pullover, you should, because all every person that I've seen that does pullovers has very good front shots in terms of the front relaxed, the front double, the front lat spread, the lats from the front just look different to the people that don't do pullovers. So pullovers, do them, definitely do them. Um, uh, unless they cause you injuries or niggles, a lot of people get anterior delt pain um, in a pullover and a lot of people feel them a lot on the triceps. So find a, a position or a movement that suits you. Um, funnily enough, I've been slacking on my pullovers. I need to get back into them because they're not a movement that I've done in a while, to be honest, and I need to get back into them. I was doing them first in my pull sessions for a while, and I did notice a good improvement in my front shots with my lats, so I'm gonna put them back in um, and start attacking them again. So thank you for reminding me of that. I need to get after my pullovers. Um, but yeah, dumbbell pullovers, I love, um, you know, the Dorian Yates style machine pullovers, um, and Ultimate, I love them as well. So yeah, definitely to get the pullovers in, that they're worthwhile doing for sure. So, in terms of the next question, it's about body weight in the last phase of contest prep. So does body weight sort of have a bigger factor? Like how, how do we monitor body weight in the last phase of contest prep when you're really, really lean? Um, and obviously like you're looking for the scale weight loss, but in reality, the scale, what, what is it telling us? So especially if you're reversing, it's a, it's a mind fuck. You know, I've seen people gain four or five pounds in a reversed setting and look leaner than they ever have before in a reversed setting. And I've been like, whoa, like what the hell is going on here? But it's just all intramuscular fullness. And that's what you gotta remind yourself of is like you're trying to put a physique on stage that is not depleted and worn out. So if you're looking to get to a specific body weight to fit into a weight category, you need to do that. You need to get as lean as you need to get to that, to fit into that weight category or as light as you need to be. But outside of that, you have no parameters that are telling you to get to a certain body weight. So all you need to do is monitor your look and the mirror and the physique shots. Those are the ones that count way more than a scale. So almost just in the final phases, like put the scale away a little bit and think about really being critical with the way that you look in the mirror and the way that you look in your posing updates. Those are the two main variables that you need to be aware of. Um, those are the tracking points, okay? So ditch the scale a little bit, obviously be aware of it. If your scale weight goes up 10 pounds in a day, you probably should be aware of that. But 
be monitoring your photos. Don't really care about what weight you come in at unless you're in a, a weight category and you're really being cautious as to where you need to be. Like for example, I need to be under 70 kg next time I compete. So I need, I need to be under that. I, I wouldn't make a good middleweight at the moment, so I need to be under 70 kg. So I don't, I don't care, I need to get there. So for, for me, that body weight is pretty important. And you know, for Kevin, for example, he had to weigh under a certain amount to meet the classic physique division. So he needed to be under a certain body weight. Um, but outside of that, you know, if you're a junior, for example, don't care about body weight, just get peeled. And then when you're peeled, just ignore body weight a little bit, go by photos and find the best look for you, whether it be two pounds above your lowest baseline, three pounds above your highest baseline, whatever, like you need to be where you need to be to look your best. And that's where a second or a third eye comes in and just sort of says, yeah, this is a good look, let's go with this um, because your mind's gonna be pretty fucked by that point. All right, so that is that. Final question is from my client Jade, and it's actually something that we've been going through together recently is like, how do you find categories for clients? So obviously when someone starts, they'll have an opinion of a category they wanna be in. And obviously for Jade, it was bikini. And as you diet down, you'll start to see someone's muscularity start to come through. And sometimes the muscularity doesn't match the division or is bigger than the division maybe demands in some categories and some federations. And at that point, you start suggesting whether, you know, you'd go to another category. So, you know, in Jade's position right now, you know, we're considering potentially looking at figure as well as doing bikini. Because from what I've seen this year, some of the figure girls in the UK DFBA with the introduction of the fit body class are slightly smaller than they have been in the past. So the option for doing figure is there, provided we can nail the posing. So my my decisions around finding categories for clients is like, Let's get you let's get you ready, let's get you close to ready and see where we're going from there. And let's make a decision when we get to the sort of like, okay, 10 week out, nine week out mark, when we can really start to see your level of muscularity. But for other people, it's quite clear, like for a men's bodybuilder, it's like, okay, cool, men's bodybuilding. Or like junior bodybuilder, okay, cool, junior bodybuilding. Um, but sometimes it's not. Like for example, Connor Crumpton, he wanted to do physique. He was like purely mindset on physique. Did a physique show and I was like, mate, your legs are way too good for this to be hidden. So we we, we whipped off the board shorts, not, not in person because that would probably be a breach of my coaching client confidentiality. But we, we took off the board shorts, put on posing trunks and then he did a bodybuilding show and he did much better in bodybuilding, to be honest. He looked a better bodybuilder. And now the goal is in his off season, he's got so much time. Like I'm very excited about Connor because... He's got the ability to compete as a junior in 2022. Take that into perspective. If if you wanna see someone who's gonna be destroying people in 2022, it's gonna be him, it's gonna be him. Like, he was already good enough to place pretty highly in two UK FBA shows as a junior at his age, 20, and he's got till 2022, and we're gonna be off season for you know, pretty much two and a half years. Um, we're going to fix his imbalances. We're going to grow him physically, mentally, everything. And then we're going to attack 2022. Like that's a long-term plan for him. Um, and I have clients like that already. I have clients that are telling me I want to compete in 2022, 2021. Like that's that's where you need to be in terms of improving and stepping up to, to where you want to be. But a bit off topic, but yeah, get people lean and uh, really sort of start to see where their shape falls and then pick the category later on. Um, one of my clients again, Grace, came to me wanting to do bikini, and uh, immediately, immediately, I was like, uh, Grace, you know, like, 
bikini's not for you. And I just slowly, like, slowly got into the idea of doing fig figure. Uh, and now it's almost definitely looking like she's going to do figure fit body um, in the UKDFBA and, and figure in the BMBF. So the BMBF figure is much more like, much more muscular figure version than the UKDFBA. Um, it just is, it, just the muscularity levels are much higher and they reward that. So she's going to definitely just do figure in the BMBF because she's not athletic, she's not physique, she's not bodybuilding, um, she's not that kind of look in my opinion, and I've got the opinions of others as well, so, and they all agreed um, that that would be the right place for her. And again, that, that helps as well, just like people who have more experience, like I've shown a lot of my female clients to other female coaches and people who I really respect in the industry, and I've been like, okay, where does this person fit? Um, and luckily, obviously, I've got people like Lee and Amy in my corner who I can literally like say, where does this person fit? And they'll give me their honest opinion. Um, and sometimes there's mixed opinions, like showed Amy someone and she said that, and then I showed Lee her, and she was, he was like, that. And it was both different. And that's just because people have different opinions. And that shows how different like opinions affect judging panels. And that's the reality of bodybuilding. It's an opinionate, opinionated sport, which is fine, because that's the way it should be judged. And that's why you have a judging panel, not a judge. Okay, so that's going to be it for this week. An hour and five minutes, we're done. So I hope you've all enjoyed this, as always share it around, put it on your stories if possible. Um, I hope you're having an amazing day, guys. Have an amazing weekend, whatever you're doing. And I, I wish you all the, the best week ahead. And I will look forward to chatting to you again next week. And probably Danny will be with me, which will be lovely. All right, so chat to you soon. And yeah, peace out. Thanks, guys. Bye.